0: So apparently this incident made a massive impression on the Apostle Peter. It convinced him that Jesus Christ was the unique revelation of God. It helped him to understand that Jesus was more than an inspired teacher of the law. He was more than the greatest of the prophets. He was the definitive word of God. And he was here and coming in power, majesty, and glory. Peter saw the kingdom coming and he heard the voice from heaven And it changed him, he said. Thanks be to God.
1: Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Jesus is the unique word of God in a way that even exalted Old Testament prophets like Moses and Elijah were not. It was important for the apostles to understand that and to believe that and we see in this story how Jesus spectacularly and authoritatively facilitated their instruction. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.
0: If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 17. Although good Christian commentators disagree somewhat as to the best way to understand the prophecy at the end of chapter 16, I can't escape the conclusion that it refers, at least partly, to the events that Matthew narrates in chapter 17. At the end of chapter 16, Jesus says, "...truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Now, granted, the kingdom comes in stages. It comes, in a sense, Anywhere and time, Jesus Christ is embraced as Savior and Lord. And it comes significantly and powerfully through the resurrection and the giving of the Spirit on Pentecost. And the kingdom comes manifestly as the church grows and the gospel spreads out beyond Jerusalem and Judea and begins to infiltrate and penetrate the Roman world. Yes, I agree with that. And it is true that some of the disciples standing there with Jesus at the end of chapter 16 witness All those events, not everyone saw them. Judas Iscariot never saw any of them. Thomas was absent for some of it, and James, the brother of John, died before much of it. But some of those standing with Jesus at the end of chapter 16 saw all those events. So, yes, it could refer to the coming of the kingdom in that sense. But I cannot escape the sense that it refers primarily to the events narrated here in chapter 17. Listen to what Matthew says without the unnatural interruption of the chapter division. We hear this differently, I think, because we read chapter 16 on one day and then chapter 17 on the next. But that is, of course, an artificial separation. Hear it as it is written. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That to me sounds for all the world like a contained unit of thought. Some of you are going to see something. Six days later, some of you saw something. So, it may mean more than that, but I don't see how it can mean less than that. The transfiguration is thus a foreshadowing of the coming kingdom of God. For just a moment, a select group of disciples were permitted to see Jesus in all of his real and coming glory. Thanks be to God. We'll begin reading now at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Let me just interrupt the narration briefly to explain that word transfigured. That's not a word we use very often in the English language. It is translating the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get our English word metamorphosis. R.T. France says helpfully here, The traditional translation transfigured from the Latin represents a verb elsewhere translated transformed, as in Romans 12.2, or changed, as in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Its meaning here is spelled out by the clauses that follow. His face shone like the sun, recalls Moses in Exodus 34, 29 to 35. And the garments white as light suggest a heavenly being. The description of the ultimate glory of the righteous, as in 1343, closed quote. So before the eyes of the three disciples, Jesus is miraculously changed. He radiates glory, and he appears as a citizen of heaven. William Hendrickson adds a helpful comment here saying, Jesus then underwent a metamorphosis. His human nature begins to make use of its divine attributes. So for just a moment, Jesus appeared as he actually is. He unveiled himself, as it were, so that the disciples could see him as he is and as he will be. When the kingdom has fully come. That must have been very encouraging to the disciples, as indeed it was meant to be. We carry on with the story in verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The Gospel of Mark, of course, adds some marvelous detail here. Mark explains the odd outburst of Peter in Mark 9, 6. He says, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This was an overwhelming experience for the disciples, and it was probably not until much later that they were able to think clearly about what they had seen and heard. What they saw was Jesus looking like God, shining like the sun, and surrounded by Old Testament heroes. Now, as to the significance of those heroes, there is general agreement that Moses and Elijah are intended to be understood as representative characters. They stand for the law and the prophets. And the message seems to be that the law and the prophets point to Jesus and are fulfilled in and surpassed by Jesus. That is why the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah do not compete with Jesus. They are not voices to be heard alongside of Jesus. Their role was to anticipate and prepare for Jesus. But with Jesus being here now and coming in all his power and glory, it is time for them to fade from the stage. Like the moon and the stars become invisible in the brightness and the splendor of the sun. That's what we're seeing here. We pick up the story in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. We have no way of knowing whether or not the disciples obeyed this command. There is certainly no record of them speaking about these things before the resurrection. We do, however, have a record of their testimony to these things after the resurrection. Peter talks about these events in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. He says there, Holy Mountain. Closed quote. So apparently, this incident made a massive impression on the Apostle Peter. It convinced him that Jesus Christ was the unique revelation of God. It helped him to understand that Jesus was more than an inspired teacher of the law. He was more than the greatest of the prophets. He was the definitive Word of God, and he was here and coming in power, majesty, and glory. Peter saw the kingdom. Coming, and he heard the voice
1: from heaven, and it changed him, he said. Thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because I want to make sure I'm not overhearing what I think I'm hearing. If I'm hearing this right, this passage seems to be saying that Jesus is the authoritative Word of God. He is what God wants to say and what God wants to reveal in a way that far surpasses the revelatory ministry of Old Testament prophets like Moses and Elijah. He is a category above. He is God's beloved son, and we should all listen to him. Yeah, you got it. That's the
0: message of this story in a nutshell.
1: Okay, but to be clear— this passage isn't saying that we can throw out our Old Testaments and forget about reading anything from the Old Prophets like Moses or Elijah, and that Jesus is here so we don't need to listen to them anymore. It isn't saying listen only to him and forget about the Old Testament Prophets, is it? No, you're
0: right. And, and in fact, I would say that Moses and Elijah, standing in here for all the Old Testament Prophets, they still function as guides for us in the same way they functioned as guides for the Apostles. We see Jesus better, and we understand Jesus better when we listen to them and when we trace out their promises and anticipations until they land on Christ. That's the correct use of the Old Testament, and Jesus taught that use to the apostles. In Luke 24, verse 27, it says, "...beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures..." the things concerning himself, close quote. So Jesus used the Old Testament prophets to teach the disciples who he was and what he had come to do. And I think that we should be using the Old Testament in exactly the
1: same way today. So sometimes we listen to Jesus by listening to the Old Testament prophets?
0: Yeah, or maybe even better to say that we find Jesus Mm. and understand Jesus best by being led there by the Old Testament prophets. Paul talked about how the sacred writings, the Old Testament, was able to make us wise unto salvation. The Old Testament tells us the truth about who God is, who we are, and what kind of Savior we will need if we're ever going to get back to God and back to the life we were created and intended to live. So the Old Testament prophets, by teaching us about that, lead us to Jesus. And then finding Jesus, we should listen to him in a unique way as opposed to an exclusive way.
1: Yeah, that's the point I was hoping that you were going to make. God isn't saying that we should read the red letters and ignore all the rest. He is saying that Jesus is the unique authoritative voice that all other voices in the Bible are pointing to. Listen to him.
0: Yes. I think it was Luther who said that Scripture is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. The Old Testament points forward, and the New Testament apostles point back, but Jesus is the center and focus of it all.
1: All right, that's really helpful. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 10, as the disciples are coming down the mountain with Jesus.
0: And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The main point of this dialogue is to remind the disciples that while the kingdom is breaking into the world and facing strong and determined opposition, kingdom messengers must expect a mixed reception, as illustrated by the response experienced by John the Baptist. Some people heard him gladly, and others opposed him vehemently. And ultimately, those people seized John and did to him what they pleased. This is the pattern that all kingdom messengers must understand and reckon with. As with John, so with Jesus, and also so with all who follow him. That's the main point that Jesus is trying to get across here to his disciples. Along the way, he clearly identifies John the Baptist with Elijah. Matthew makes that explicit, which is interesting because John the Baptist himself never even made that connection. Jesus isn't saying that John was Elijah reincarnated. He's just saying that John had the mantle of Elijah or had a similar anointing and this is another reminder, by the way, not to be crassly literalistic in the way we handle biblical prophecy. Crass literalism gets us into trouble. When Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is my body, which is given for you, most of us understand that he is not speaking in a crassly literalistic way. The word is there means something like represents or reminds or stands for. Similarly, when Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirteen 13 to 14, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. We understand that is there means something like John is like Elijah, or John is filled with a similar spirit, or John has a similar anointing, or John fulfills a similar function. That's how Jesus speaks. And it's helpful for us to learn his language so that we understand him correctly. So Jesus explains this to the disciples. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. We pick up the story in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. The point of the story is to illustrate the gap between the glory and brilliance of the mountain and the confusion and chaos of the valley down below. We are a long way still from the consummated kingdom of God. Down here in the valley, there is brokenness, disease, confusion, and incompetence. Lord, help. As for faith like a mustard seed moving mountains, Charles Spurgeon says memorably here, in the mission field, mountains of exclusiveness, which shut out missionaries, have been removed. In ordinary life, insurmountable difficulties are graciously dissolved. In a variety of ways, before real faith, hindrances disappear. According to the word of the Lord Jesus, nothing shall be impossible unto you. Closed quote. Thanks be to God. We pick up the story at verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. This is the second passion prediction in Matthew's gospel, and it appears to happen as Jesus and the three disciples rejoin the other nine. All were greatly distressed upon hearing it. The three who were with him on the mountain must have also been greatly perplexed. If the kingdom is coming, and if the glory is only now but veiled, then how can it be that the Son of Man should be delivered into the hands of men and suffer the sort of things Jesus has here described. Here we note how partial at this point was the faith and understanding of the disciples. Verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Matthew is the only gospel writer who shares this story. No doubt his previous occupation as a tax collector played some role in his decision-making here. The tax in question was for the support of the temple and its services and was levied upon every Jewish male between the ages of 25 and 50. Obviously, both Peter and Jesus were in that age bracket— whether the other disciples were younger than that isn't explicitly stated. The main point of the story is that Jesus, as the unique son of God, is exempt from taxes given to his father. And yet, to avoid offense, he is willing to pay. Most commentators understand that in a secondary sense, this teaching would have been understood by the first century Christians as exempting them, as sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ, from Jewish temple taxes, an application that became moot, of course, in 8070 when the temple was destroyed. D.A. Carson hints at a further figurative application. He says, Though Jesus, as the unique son, is free from the law's demands, he not only submits to them, but makes provision, as only he can, for the demands on his disciples. And this right after a passion prediction, closed quote. Are you hearing that? Jesus, as the rightful son of God, will pay the price for his disciples to join him in worshiping God. He will pay what we cannot so that we can join him in the house and in the worship of the Lord. That's the gospel, my friends, in one compact little story. Thanks be to God.
1: Amen. Pastor Paul, before we wrap up for the day, I want to go back to something you said there in the end. You were talking about that story at the end of chapter 17, where Jesus pays the temple tax for himself and for Peter with a coin that Peter pulls out of a fish's mouth. Yeah. And obviously we have to be careful what applications we make from this passage. (laughs) Yeah, right. I hadn't thought about that. But actually, I think I'm on pretty solid ground here with my question. I was really struck by the humility of Jesus in doing something that he didn't have to do so as to avoid offense. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about our rights, our freedoms, and here is Jesus who was lawfully exempt from this tax, paying it forward anyway to avoid offense. Is there a lesson in there for us as modern day Christians? Yeah, I think there is. Listen, it's always
0: hard to rise above the level of your culture. But as Christians, we have to try. I know that in our culture, there is an obsession with personal rights. Everyone in our culture expects to make use of 100% of their personal and lawful
1: liberties. (laughs) Maybe 110%. Uh, I think most people are taking 100% of what they're entitled to and maybe a little bonus.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. But obviously, that's not the Christian way. The gospel is about a God who, though he was rich, for our sake became poor. The gospel is about a Savior who, though he had done nothing wrong, suffered the penalty our sins deserved. The gospel is about a king who, though he was exempt, paid for himself and also for his disciples. So we follow a Jesus who was not obsessed with his rights, and therefore I think we need to modify and rebuke our obsession With our rights. Now, listen, obviously, rights are important and liberty is important. I'm thankful for the rights that we have as Canadians. And I think that whenever we see rights being trampled or abused, we should speak up. We should use our power and privilege to advocate for anyone who is being mistreated. But let's do that on behalf of others and not ourselves. When we make a lot of noise about our rights, When we're always telling the government and the people of Canada that we have a right to this and that and they owe us this and that, we don't sound a lot like Jesus. And we don't sound a lot like the disciples of Jesus. They learn to give up some of their rights. The Apostle Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9.12. He talks about putting up with a bunch of stuff he didn't have to rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So, to answer your question... Yes, I think that many of us, myself included, have maybe drunk a little too deeply of the cultural Kool-Aid and have become a little too invested in personal rights. As followers of Jesus and heirs of the kingdom of God, we could probably put up with more rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I think you're absolutely right in pointing that out.
1: Yeah, and I think I'm as guilty of that as anyone else. I think, like you say... It is a cultural obsession that all Christians in this country probably need to be more mindful of.
0: Yeah, amen to that.
1: Well, as always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.